0: thanks ladies great praises i love um both of those stories about um calling out to god for someone and um waiting for his answer we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning with psalm 22 welcome to women in the word i'm shelly davis i'm glad to be back with you but i kind of miss river city it's a little bit uh it's a little bit lonesome up here Uh, who would have ever thought that we could have made some great comparisons between Music Man and the Psalms, but we did it, didn't we? Those great communal laments, and then Deb had her great um, uh, comparison of the confession at the end of the Music Man. So uh, even though River City's not here, I just want you to know your teachers can compare the Word of God to anything if they need to. Um, <laughs> You know, the message of the music man, if you came to it uh, at the end of the program, they came out and said, you know, this was really a story about how unconditional love changes lives. And if there's anyone in the scriptures that knows that, it's David. David totally knew um, God's unconditional love throughout his life. David, who wrote Psalm 18 and Psalm 51 that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, he also wrote today's psalm, Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22, I know you already know this because you've done your homework and been in your small group, but Psalm 22 is a very unique psalm. I was pretty intimidated and very amazed as I studied Psalm 22 over the last couple of months there have been whole volumes that have been written about psalm 22 in fact uh, there's a man by the name of uh, the reverend john stevenson who's written uh, a series of volumes um, on uh, as sermons and one of them is called christ on the cross and in that he included a sermon on every single verse of Psalm 22. In other words, he wrote 31 sermons off of Psalm 22. We're not going to have time to do that this morning. We're just going to scratch the surface just a little bit of Psalm 22. Here's some of the comments of the theologians that I read uh, when I was looking at Psalm 22. Martin Luther said this about Psalm 22. This is a kind of gem among the Psalms and is peculiarly excellent and remarkable this psalm ought to be most highly prized by all who have an acquaintance with temptations of the faith and spiritual consequences and charles spurgeon who's one of my favorite writers on the psalms this is what spurgeon said we should read reverently putting off our shoes from off our feet as moses did at the burning bush for if there be holy ground anywhere in the scriptures it is in this psalm so we're going to pull off our shoes this morning figuratively not literally and we are going to walk on the holy ground that is psalm 22 together so turn there with me in your bibles you should have outlines in verses so that you can follow along with me in the scriptures But before we start actually reading Psalm 22, I need to give you some background on Psalm 22. When we looked at the other psalms, when we looked at Psalm 18 and Psalm 51 of David, we went back to the scriptures and we looked at the historical content. We looked in First and Second Samuel about what we thought was actually going on in David's life when he wrote those particular psalms. Now, I did find one small reference, one small commentator, that suggested that psalm 22 might also have been written during that same period that david wrote psalm 18 when he was being pursued by saul for those 10 or 12 years but the majority of the opinion almost everyone else that i read believes that there is no known incident in david's life which fits the details of this psalm and the reason most of them believe that is not because david didn't have hard times and wouldn't have had times of despair or desperation in his life but that their reasoning is as we're going to see in a few moments is that psalm 22 is really more of a description of an execution than anything else, than any other time of a prolonged suffering. And in addition, the description of that execution that David gives us very precisely here parallels Jesus' execution more than anything that we might possibly find um, known to exist in david's life now the gospel writers as you know if you did your homework uh, connected the dots between the words of this psalm and the events of the crucifixion and they recorded many exact parallels between what david wrote and what the gospel writers observed and wrote about at the crucifixion Um, so rather than connecting this psalm to any historical content in the life of david psalm 22 has been understood to be typological that's a big word we're going to talk about it typological of the death of jesus christ and what typological means is it means that while david was giving us many poetic descriptions of his own intense suffering in psalm 22 those poetic descriptions as david wrote them become literally true of jesus's experience on the cross in jesus's case they weren't poetic examples they were historical truth and fact the typology in psalm 22 is a unique type of prophecy most prophecy when you read it you think aha i'm going to look for that in the future Uh, i'm going to look for that invasion by the uh, babylonians or whatever you read it and it predicts the future typology is a unique type of prophecy that does not show itself until the events have actually occurred and then you can look back at what was written and see that it did actually accurately portray down to the last detail what happened in the future now another curious feature of psalm 22 is that in spite of the implication that there's an execution taking place here There's not one mention of an offense or a reason why David might have been executed in this psalm. And there's not any cursing or condemnation of the enemy as there are in the other psalms of david david frequently in his psalms when he's being chased or persecuted or pursues he calls out for god to seek vengeance on his enemies as they are pursuing him or persecuting him psalm 69 which is on your verse sheet is an example of david calling out for retribution and vengeance against his enemies and that is completely lacking in psalm 22 in psalm 69 david says charge them with crime upon crime and do not let them share in your salvation may they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous so david typically calls out for vengeance against his enemies and that is completely absent in psalm 22 psalm 22 in its essence is the description of a righteous man being put to death by evil men so we're going to read Psalm 22 together here this morning, and it breaks down nicely. And not all psalms do this, but Psalm 22 breaks down nicely into three sections. First, we have David's cry out to the Lord. Then we have David's description of his desperate condition. And then we have David's consolation or comfort when he experiences God's provision. So let's read. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 and verses 6 and 8 first. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry out by day, you do not answer, by night and am not silent. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. You know, David begins his shout out here with some pretty heartbreaking words. In essence, he's saying, Lord, where in the world have you gone? I am calling out for you. I'm calling out for you during the day and I'm calling out for you in the night and you are not answering me. The picture we get here from verses 1 and 2 is David calling out repeatedly, but there is no answer from the Lord. We can sense his deep frustration right here in verses one and two no matter when he calls out god does not answer now i imagine if we were able to go down the roads today we would all have um maybe a similar time in our life when things were not good and we felt like uh we were experiencing david's same frustration a time of pain or suffering when we wanted or expected god to enter into that with us and yet um there was silence we felt forsaken and that's what david feels um, and expresses right here you know as i studied i was struck by the fact that every single resource that i read said the same thing david felt forsaken by god and i know you're thinking it doesn't take a theologian to figure that out we all see that in the passage but the point is everyone agreed that it was simply how david felt It was not a reality. In truth, God had not forsaken David, and we're going to see that as we continue through this psalm. And we saw that when we studied Psalm 18 and we studied Psalm 51. When David was pursued by his enemies and Psalm 18 said he felt the cords of death around his neck, um, God was there. God delivered him. And when David turned away from God, as we looked uh, last week and we read his great psalm of confession and repentance in Psalm 51, who was there to bring David to repentance, even in the midst of such a blatant uh, disobedient? God was there with David. So two points for us to remember just as we step into this Psalm and step on that, uh, take our first step on holy ground is that it is okay. And I hope you had a chance to talk about this in your small group. It is completely okay to voice our frustration and our feelings of forsakenness with God's silence and God's timing in our life. David was honest and we can be equally honest, uh, with our God. And we can also know as believers, as God's own people, our feelings of being forsaken are feelings. They are not the truth. Because here's the truth, ladies, from the scriptures. Hebrews thirteen five says the first part of it says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Psalm thirty seven twenty five says this I was young. And now I'm old, and yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken. As believers, we are the righteous, and God will not forsake us no matter how we feel or how long he is silent in the midst of our despair. So Psalm 22 opens us up with David freely voicing his feelings of being forsaken, and he calls himself a worm, scorned and despised and mocked. Those are David's feelings. But as we talked a few moments ago... David's poetic expressions are more than just expressions for our Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, we see they are Jesus's reality. Matthew 27, 41 through 46, on your verse sheet says, In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him, of course, meaning Jesus. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elwa, Elwa, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus hangs on the cross, he lives out David's words that were written a thousand years earlier. He was scorned and despised and mocked in reality. And many theologians believe that Jesus actually quoted Psalm 22 right here in its um, entirety, even though the gospel writers only recorded um, that he said the very first verse But it is that first verse that is probably the most significant when we consider this because it shares with us a really stunning truth. The reality that God, for the first time in eternity, from eternity past to eternity future, as we see that darkness descended on Golgotha and the sins of the world were placed firmly on the shoulders of Jesus Christ by a divine plan. For the first time, God has truly Turned his back on his son. David's feelings of being forsaken are truth and the life of Jesus Christ. Now, we can't this morning put our minds around how um, God the Father can actually forsake, turn his back on God the Son. How does that work for a triune God? I wish I could um, give you the mechanics of it this morning, but I can't. All I can tell you is that it did happen and the scriptures tell us that. We know that for these hours of darkness and suffering, a perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God did not did turn his back on our some sin substitute because a holy God must separate himself from sin. A holy God can only judge and punish sin. A holy God cannot embrace sin. We don't have time to talk about it, but I would encourage each of you to go back a couple of pages uh, in Matthew and read about the anguish that Christ experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. I believe that what gave him the most anguish that night in the Garden as he anticipated the crucifixion was not the anticipation of the physical suffering or the beating that he was going to take. It was not the, even the betrayal, which was so uh, had to have been so personally heartbreaking for him, the mocking or even the sin that he was going to bear. I believe what gave him the most anguish that night in Gethsemane was the reality that he was going to do all of that alone, completely alone completely and necessarily forsaken by the beloved father for our sake and that is the holy ground of psalm 22 we may have times in life like david when we feel forsaken but we must remember that only christ truly was forsaken and it was for us Now, even though David is suffering, truly suffering, as we look at verses uh, 3 through 5 and 9 through 11, we can see that David, in the midst of his suffering, has not let go of his faith. Verse 3 through 5 says, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. In verses 9 to 11, David says, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Now, in spite of God's silence, David's faith in God was still intact. We see that he has great confidence in the God that has never disappointed the nation of Israel. And these few verses tell us where that faith comes from in desperate times. David's faith in God in his desperate times comes from the fact that he understands who God is. And he tells us right here who he knows God to be in these verses. He tells us that his God is a holy God set apart from all the idols. He is the one true God. He tells us that his God has answered the prayers of his ancestors for deliverance. In other words... David knows in his heart that his God is a faithful God. His God is Israel's true king enthroned in heaven. In other words, David knows in his heart that his God is a sovereign God. His God is the God he was trained in to trust in as a small child. And if you're a mother in the audience today and you have little bitty children, take this to heart. David's faith began as a small child and it has sustained him all of his life. David's faith in God comes not from how he feels in his suffering because he feels alone. He feels forsaken and he feels God's deep silence. His faith comes from understanding who God is after a lifetime of knowing God. These are David's own words in 2 Samuel 22. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. That's what David knew about God after a lifetime of walking with him. And David gives us good wisdom here. We must endure our seasons of feeling forsaken through faith also remembering who god is even during those seasons of feeling forsaken we cannot forget who god is we must remember what he has done for us we talked in the small group leaders meeting this morning several people mentioned their journals you don't have to be a journal but don't forget what god has done for you in the past it's going to serve you well when you're feeling that god is silent and as a believer we must especially remember that jesus was the only one that was actually forsaken, and it was for our sake. Romans 8:32 on your verse sheet says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We must remember in those seasons of feeling like God is far away who God is. Okay, let's read verses 12 through 18 together. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls at Baishan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their wives' mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. There's no doubt from these six verses that David considers his um, condition desperate. It's not just a bad day. in David's world, he's at the mercy of his enemies, and he describes them here as wild beasts. And he uses graphic word pictures to uh, capture his distress as he's attacked. He says he's just like water poured out on the ground. You can't gather water up once it's poured out from the ground. He feels that way. He's unable to resist because he's so um, lacking here in strength. He feels as his very bones are dislocated. So there's no chance with dislocated bones that he could possibly mount an attack to fight off his attackers. And his courage, which is what he is describing when he's talking in verse 14 about his heart, his courage is totally gone. It's melted away like wax. He's shouting out the fact that I can no longer stand firm. I have nothing else. I have no, nothing left. I have no physical strength I have no emotional strength left to fight off this attack that I'm receiving. In fact, David compares his enemies in verses 16 to 18 to wild dogs. And he says, they're already biting my hands and my feet and tearing the flesh away from my hands and my feet. And just around the corner, he knows his personal belongings are already being handed out. Everyone knows he's dying. He doesn't need his clothes anymore. But what's so compelling when you really take a look at this passage it's not so much david's description of his own terrible state but the fact that what it really is ladies is a graphic description of death by crucifixion crucifixion does cause the bones of the hands and the arms and the shoulders and the pelvis to dislocate because of the weight of of the body as it hangs suspended from the cross. There is profuse perspiration in crucifixion because of the intense pain that um, the inflicted one is going through. There's a reference, uh, and that's the reference in verse 14 to being poured out by water, is this reference to this intense perspiration. The pumping of the heart becomes completely ineffective. It would feel like your heart muscle had dissolved because your lungs fill up with water and you get so much fluid in your chest cavity that your heart muscle can actually not contract anymore. And the thirst, the thirst that all these things would have caused would have been overwhelming. The crucifixion of Jesus literally fulfills all of David's um, poetic, expressive words here. And when you consider that the crucifixion was not something that David would have been overly familiar with because crucifixion was a Roman form of execution, not a Jewish form of execution. It definitely places Psalm 22 once again on the holy ground that Spurgeon was speaking of these verses make a compelling case that psalm 22 is a supernatural signpost pointing straight to the cross but while we see david's desperation here in these six verses in the next two verses we see where david goes and what he does when he is desperate verses 19 through 21 but you, O oh Lord, be not far off. O oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. In 2004, I went with a team of our ladies to uh, Tanzania for the very first time to teach um, a women's conference to Uh, the African women and when the conference was over we left our African hosts and we were going to spend just an overnight and a couple of days touring a uh, game preserve in the middle of central Tanzania and we spent the night, I have to tell you, we um, spent the night in these tents that were a combination of Ralph Lauren and out of Africa. I mean, they were the most amazing things we've ever seen. So we weren't suffering any at all when we were spending the night in these tents. And so the next day we got up and we had uh, two safari vehicles and each one had a a couple of African um, guides in them that spoke Swahili. And we divided into two groups and we set out into the middle of this huge game preserve to see the wildlife, which was spectacular. In fact, we pulled up beside the road with giraffes standing right there beside the road, and we all screamed so loud it scared the giraffes, and they totally ran off into the brooch. It was just amazing to see the wildlife. But about midday, we ran into some difficulty. The safari vehicle that I was in uh, was headed down a road, and there was a huge sand pit. And rather than stop and check it out, our um, safari guides drove us right into the middle of it where we got stuck. Right up to the uh, doors in the sand. The vehicle behind us saw that and stopped, and they turned around and left. And we had no idea what was happening here, and um, th- with the other vehicle, they were just gone. And I mean, it is, we are in the wilds. There's nothing for miles. Our guides got out, and they made a little half hearted effort to unstick. The van, and then they said something which we think they said, "Get back in the vans. There's lions." We're not really sure that's what they said, but we took them very seriously, and we got back in that safari van, and then they ran off and left us out into the sunset, and we had no idea where they were going and um, what they were, whether they would ever be back. So we did what all good women do in a trying situation we opened our backpacks and got out our snacks and we ate that was really the first order of business okay this is hard let's eat and so we did then we did pray and then we sat there for a while um and we finally kind of figured out there's nobody coming back here we are here in this vehicle um and and so we decided that there was a two-way radio that was periodically would someone would speak swahili on so we decided we were in a trying situation we were going to call out and so deb haygood i don't know whether deb's in here right now but deb haygood got on the two-way radio and said does anybody out there speak english we are in trouble help does anybody out there speak english and guess what Our other team answered us back. They heard us. They were out there. Now, my point here this morning is in a trying time, we had a lot of choices. We could just eat. We could cry. We could sit. We could talk about how difficult this might be and how many days we'd last out there with the lions if nobody ever came back. Um, Or we could call out. And because we did call out on that two-way radio, someone answered us back. And they assured us that they were going to um, not leave us there. Now, Linda Henry was in that van. I'm not sure I trusted Linda to come back and get us, but she did come back uh, and get us. So uh, we called out and someone answered us. You know, we see that very same thing here with David. David could not help himself, but he knew the one that could. And so instead of sitting and stewing any longer he has been honest with god he has called out uh, he has told god everything he was feeling but now he calls out to god in these two verses and what we see here is that god answers him There's a marked change in the attitude in the middle of verse 21. In our NIV Bibles, it wasn't quite as obvious as it is when you go back and study it just a little bit. In the Hebrew, the word in verse 21 that we have in our NIV translated save actually literally means in Hebrew, you have heard me. So the sense of this verse is actually more like The end of verse 21 is more like you have heard my petition and you will answer me by delivering me from death at the hands of my enemies. We don't know what God says to David right here in the middle of this psalm at the end of verse 21, but we know that he calls out to God. And God answers him. All the sources I studied express the opinion that David actually right here received some sort of an oracle of salvation from the Lord himself or a direct revelation in some form or fashion from the Lord assuring him of salvation of deliverance. Now this psalm, as I told you earlier, has so much in it, so uh, much theology, so many great truths that we can't possibly talk about it. But when I studied this psalm, I thought this was a pretty simple lesson for us to take from Psalm 22. For believers, desperate times don't necessarily call for desperate measures, but what they do call for is for a complete dependence on God. You know, most of the time we search around for people to help us out, and when we were in that safari van, we did pray, ladies, and I believe God was there with us, but we called out uh, to someone that we thought could help us. Desperate times should send us all to our knees, not in defeat. In fact, we may in desperate times already be on our knees, but when we are on our knees, what we need to be doing is calling out to God for His direct deliverance Um, we survive our seasons of desperation really in just way in just one way not by simply sitting and stewing and suffering not even by telling our friends about it not even by being angry and shaking our fist at god but really we survive our seasons of desperation by depending on god because he is the only one that is truly dependable And calling out to God for deliverance. Jeremiah 33.3 says just that. Call to me and I will answer you. And then Psalm 145.18 and 19 affirms this also. It says the Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. David cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard him and delivered him. Now we've seen David's cry and we've seen his condition. Let's look as we finish up here at David's consolation, or comfort towards the end of this Psalm. Verse 22 through 26. I will declare your name to my brothers and congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Now, it was pretty common in David's day to make a vow to the Lord as you petitioned him or called out to him. In Israel, vows were promises to give God something if god would answer you now occasionally that was a material blessing a tithe of some sort but most often the vow was made to praise god when he answered and apparently david in his suffering in his desperate time has made that kind of a vow a vow before god to praise him for his deliverance and he makes good on that vow here at the end of psalm 22 he praises god publicly before the worshiping congregation in the temple he testifies to the salvation that god has brought to him and then he calls on the entire congregation to praise god also for the testimony that david has about his deliverance now david is not the only one who has experienced god's deliverance from the power of death and he is not the only one who praises god for that deliverance the writer of hebrews tells us that jesus called out to god to be delivered from death and was heard Hebrews 5 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And the writer of Hebrews also tells us that a triumphant Messiah, delivered from death, also praised god publicly and in the presence of the entire congregation and this is interesting because in hebrews chapter 2 the writer of hebrews attributes that praise to the words of psalm 22 this is what he um, says that how the savior praised god for delivering him uh, hebrews 2 12 He, Jesus, says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. It is a direct quote from Psalm 22. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus praised God with these exact words. Um, It is true, just as God delivered David from death, he also saved his own son from death. David was saved when God prolonged his life, as we see here in Psalm 22. And Jesus was saved from death when God resurrected him from the grave that Sunday morning. Death could not hold Jesus. God answered his prayer to be saved from that. And both apparently praised God for their deliverance with these words in Psalm 22, which places us a few steps further to our holy ground. So let's finish our psalm, verses 27 through 31. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship, and all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. These are amazing verses here because David anticipates that the whole world, even the rich, he says here, even the dying, those are going down to the dust. All the families of the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but what he's talking about here today is you and I. He's talking about the Gentiles, all the nations of the world will bow down and worship the one true God because he is the sovereign king. Now, David was making these claims in Psalm 22 based on his own testimony of deliverance. He was rejoicing in God's provision uh, in prolonging his own life, rejoicing in his testimony of God's delivering him from death. And he voices his belief here that that testimony would later influence generations of people to trust in the Lord. But this morning, because we know this is a typology... We know that David's poetic expression here is a historical reality not through David but through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can look at these final verses in Psalm 22 from our vantage point and know that when all the nations of the world bow down and worship the sovereign king, it's not going to be because God delivered David as great and wonderful as that was but because God delivered Jesus from death. And it is the testimony of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that is going to one day lead the whole world to bow down before the sovereign king. And David's final verse, um, which reads, For he has done it, is mirrored because Christ knows um, what it is that has happened on the cross. A thousand years later, he says this in John 19:30. When he received the drink, Jesus said... It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Our final lesson from Psalm 22 and probably our greatest lesson is that there is one thing that we can all count on in life even if we suffer. Because Psalm 22 points a straight path to our Lord Jesus Christ and the cross, we can count on the fact that God will answer our prayers to be delivered from death if we call on him. Now, there may be some of us in this room that experience illnesses or um, other difficulties in our life, and we call on God to deliver us from that. And in the short term, he may heal us and do that. But what we have to remember is that our ultimate prayer for delivery from death and our ultimate answer uh, for being delivered comes as he delivers us, from death, from eternal separation from a holy God, through the resurrection, just as He did our Lord Jesus Christ. John three sixteen, and it's not on your verse sheet, but I know most of you know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That is the one message of Psalm twenty two. We can all call out to God to be delivered from death and know that he will answer that prayer through our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. With this ultimate assurance of salvation, we can then follow David's example in these last verses of Psalm 22 and we can praise God. We can praise God loudly and publicly and we can encourage others to praise God also because he has answered every one of our prayers for deliverance. Pray with me, ladies. Father, you are the God that has answered our prayers for deliverance through the uh, forsakenness and the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. By grace, we are saved through faith in him. And I praise you publicly this morning for that fact. Father, I ask that you would... um, sink the word of truth deeply into all of our hearts this morning and whatever it is that each one of us needs to hear this morning uh, and there are many of us here that may be feeling forsaken and feeling your silence lord um would you speak to us would you give us your truth would you um let everyone in this room know that when you when they call out to you you answer them i pray this in the name of your son our savior jesus christ amen thanks ladies